so I'm continuing our autumn sermon series called Rockstar, the David Saga, two parts today, Outlaw and Hero. First scripture lesson is from 1 Samuel 22. A little background to what's happening in this text. Uh, David has become a member of King Saul's court because of his military exploits, but of course King Saul is a very troubled person. The Bible tells us he had an evil spirit, so evil in fact that one day he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear, and so David flees into the wilderness, and this is what happens. David left the palace and escaped to the cave of Adjulam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to be with David. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to be with David, and David became captain over them. Those who were with David numbered about 400. And the Psalter lesson this morning, lesson from the Hebrew Psalter is Psalm 96, the choir We'll sing it for us. So David is on the run from King Saul with his little band of 400 misfits, and this is what happens next. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is in hiding in the southern hills. And so Saul rose and went down to the wilderness with 3,000 chosen men to seek David in the wilderness. Saul encamped on the hill of Hachalah, And when David learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies who learned that Saul was sleeping within the encampment with his army encamped around him. And so David and and Abishai, his lieutenant, went to the army by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And the lieutenant Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand today. Now therefore let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can raise one's hand against the Lord's anointed and still be guiltless? David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down or his day will come to die or he will fall in battle and perish. And so the Lord forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is at his head and the water jar and let us go. And so they took the spear that was at Saul's head and the water jar and they went away. And no one saw it or knew it, nor did anyone awake, for they had fallen into a deep sleep. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Fred Craddock is Emeritus Professor of Preaching at Emory University, Joe's alma mater in Atlanta, and one of the great American preachers of our lifetimes. A while back, Dr. Craddock wanted to see the Holy Land up close and personal, and so he hired his own personal guide, just the two of them, Fred and his guide. And the Israeli guide was showing Fred around the sites in Jerusalem, all the sacred sites in the city. And then the guide said to Fred, can I show you something else, something that's really not on any map? And Fred said, sure, it's your tour. And so the guide drove Fred a few miles outside the city into the countryside on an untraveled road. And they came to a place which was really no place, just a nondescript rise along the side of this untraveled road. And the guide got out and he said, this is the place where we won a great victory for the Jewish people. 
They had us trapped behind this rise and they thought they'd taken us by surprise but we were ready for them and some of us circled around behind them and we had them surrounded. We had them every last one. A great Jewish victory. And Dr. Craddock said to the guide, so which war was this? The Six Days War, 1967? The War for Independence, 1948? And the guide said, no, this was the Maccabean War. Fred said, the Maccabean War, that was 2,000 years ago. You speak as if you were there. And the guide looked him in the eye and said, I was. That's the great solidarity of the Jewish people and their impressive memory. They tell these stories that are so vivid and alive. It's as if you were there. And that's what happens to faithful Jewish people when they read the David Saga. This is one of the greatest stories ever told. It transports them back 3,000 years. The author of the David Saga belongs in that literary pantheon with Homer and Virgil. And what he gets right in this morning's stories, of course, is the character development, right? With a few deft, small, efficient strokes, he paints us a picture of these two rivals for the throne who can't be any more different from each other, right? Saul is dark, brooding, shy, and painfully self-confident. God and God's press secretary Samuel think Saul has what it takes to be Israel's first king. But when they go to tell him this, Saul hides in the luggage. A little while later, an evil spirit comes on Paul, and it's so evil that he tries to pin his friend David to the wall with his lethal, lethal spear. If Saul were alive today, we would not talk about his evil spirits. We would say that he was clinically depressed. And very few clinically depressed people make great leaders. And if from your scientific, sophisticated frame of mind, you are suspicious of the Bible's frequent references to spooky, unseen things like demons and evil spirits, just remember that the accomplished contemporary author Andrew Solomon speaks of depression as the noonday demon. Yes? Depression is so alive and so horrifying, it seems like as if it wants to haunt you. And David is Saul's exact opposite. David is charming, charismatic, and bursting with joie de vivre and this raw, irrepressible masculine energy. Women swoon in David's presence, and men envy him for that very reason, but they still want his autograph. And David collects an impressive entourage, just strolling down the streets of Bethlehem, minding his own business. Now, if you are a Shakespeare aficionado, Saul is a dithering, indecisive Hamlet. And David is Prince Hal or Hotspur from the Henry plays. David has so much ambition, he verges on becoming Macbeth, the regicidal cont contender to the throne. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself to fall on the other. Only vaulting ambition to spur the sides of my intent. And so when I think of King David, I remember that old adage that I think is very true. In life as in sports, your greatest strengths lie right next door to your greatest weaknesses. To put it a different way, your greatest strengths can make you a hero or an outlaw. So for instance, in tennis, if you have a huge serve, you'll get many aces and have many double faults. 
In boxing, a muscular roundhouse right hook might give you a knockout or leave your torso and chin open to your opponent's rapid jabs. In baseball, if you swing for the fences, you might have many home runs, but also many Ks. Reggie Jackson hit 563 home runs in his career, including one time three in a row on three consecutive pitches from three different pitchers in Game 6 of the 1977 World Series against the Dodgers. Reggie Jackson is 14th on the all-time career home run list. He also struck out, get this, 2,597 times, most in baseball history. Reggie struck out almost five times for every home run he hit, one in four plate appearances he struck out. Now, nothing good happens with a strikeout. If you ground out to the shortstop, you might advance a runner. And if you fly out to right field, you might bat in a run. But nothing good happens with a strikeout. In sports, your greatest strengths lie right next door to your greatest weaknesses. And in life, if you are so focused and so intense and so resolute that you always get your way, this might make you successful in business and a failure at home. If you're, this is me, if your sense of unfairness is so sensitive and you take instant umbrage at the slightest little unfairness, this might make you a valiant crusader for the disenfranchised at City Hall or in Springfield or on the church board, but a very unpleasant dinner guest. <laughs> if you are placid and passive and easygoing and unflappable, this might make you a wonderful friend to the gracious, but also an easy mark for the unscrupulous. And if you are ambitious and brave and omnicompetent like David, you might become a hero who spares the king's life or an outlaw who usurps the throne from the legitimate monarch. That's what he is at first, right? Just an outlaw. David has to flee Saul's wrath, so he goes into hiding in the wilderness. But now somehow, every ne'er-do-well in the kingdom somehow finds their way to David. Every malcontent in Saul's kingdom, every bankrupt debtor, every plaintiff who's ever lost a suit under the present administration, every Democrat who is aggrieved over Brett Kavanaugh, David is a magnet for every malcontent in Saul's land. There are 400 of them. But this is the army David will use to ascend to the throne. He's a lovable scoundrel like Butch Cassidy or the Sundance Kid. David is Che Guevara. David is Fidel Castro. David is the Bolsheviks from 1917. David is George Washington, nipping at the heels of the world's greatest empire like an ankle biter, but then ultimately prevailing. They're making a movie which will come out next year with Chris Pine as the Scottish revolutionary Robert the Bruce. It's called The Outlaw King. And that's what David is in the David saga, The Outlaw King. Now, I don't know if this movie will be any good, but it will be required viewing for anybody who travels to Scotland with me next autumn. The Outlaw King, a traitor to his land, a usurper to the throne. But you know what Gore Vidal says, a traitor who prevails becomes a patriot, like George Washington. But David's irrepressible ambition and resolute courage also make him capable of heroic deeds. 
He and his small band of malcontents are in the wilderness on the run, outnumbered almost 10 to 1 by Saul's green berets. And at nightfall, Saul's army encamps beneath the stars. They all fall asleep. Saul is in the middle of them. He goes to sleep with his spear stuck in the ground like a flagpole and his canteen next to it at his head. Now, maybe this alone proves that Saul is incompetent to be king of Israel because he allows David to sneak undetected into the camp. He leaves himself, the king of Israel, undefended. Somehow, David and his henchmen come upon Saul and find him sleeping there. Now, remember this. God has already told David that David will be Israel's next king. And it could be that it's God, God's self, who has put Saul into David's hands at this time and in just this way. But David refuses to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Abishai, his lieutenant, says, let me pin him to the earth like he tried to pin you to the wall. I won't have to do this twice. One stroke will do. But David says, no, no, no. Let the Lord take care of that. And David becomes king only when Israel's enemies ultimately dispatch Saul. When Saul and his minions go low, David and his malcontents go high. He is the most beloved and admire, admired hero in Hebrew history. And to this day, the Israeli flag is emblazoned with the star of David. And yet, like the rest of us, he's no more than a brew of false and true of bad and good, of vice and virtue. And with this alloy in his character of vaulting ambition and relentless integrity, David faces a vexing dilemma. What do you do when you believe that the holder of the highest office in the land is not fit to hold that office? There's a new book this year, just out this year, called Then They Came For Me. Martin Niemöller, the pastor who defied the Nazis. Do you know the name Martin Niemöller? He was a U-boat captain of high distinction during World War I, and after the war he matriculated at seminary and became a Lutheran pastor, and in 1931 became the senior minister at a prominent parish in Berlin. But six years later, in 1937, he'd become so vocal in his criticism of the Nazis that Hitler had it with him and threw him into the concentration camps at Sachsenhausen and Dachau, where he stayed for eight years until the Allies liberated the camps in 1945. And if you know the name Martin Niemöller at all, it is probably because of the famous Niemöller Confession. He said, first they came for the communists, but I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, but I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. He's a hero for all those German Christians who stayed true to Jesus and loathed Hitler and knew that you couldn't hold those two personalities in your allegiance at one time. He's a hero for me. For me. Preachers need heroes. Martin Niemöller is my hero, and I was so disturbed to find out that he came very late to this righteous opposition to Hitler. 
He was by nature very conservative, and he voted for the Nazis twice, first in 1924 and a second time in 1933, which, of course, was the last democratic vote in Nazi Germany. He was an anti-Semite and an anti-communist. He was, says his biographer, an influential pastor who voted for the Nazis, welcomed Hitler's rise, and showed contempt for groups he deemed anti-Christian and anti-German. In a word, he was one of Hitler's early enablers. Just a brew of false and true, of bad and good, of vice and virtue, like David, like all of us, an alloy of vaulting ambition and exemplary integrity. But out of the likes of David, and you and me too, God builds empires. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.